Good evening, LCM. Tonight is Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. The title of tonight's sermon is Take Your Seat. Yeah, Joy, I'm talking to you. Take your seat. Amen. We want to jump right into scripture. So everyone turn with us to Daniel chapter 7. Come on now, Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 9. Somebody say, take your seat when you get there. Oh, come on now. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. It says this, as I looked, thrones were set in place. Not just one throne, but thrones. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Come on now, let that just wash over you here for a second as you're envisioning this. His clothing was as white as snow. Mm. Purity, righteousness. The hair of his head was white like wool. Oh, that's glorious. Come on now. All you guys worried about getting gray hair? I'm just saying the Ancient of Days is already there. His throne was flaming with fire. Did you hear one of the words tonight? Did you hear what Chris Rayasor gave as an interpretation tonight? That the fire of God. See here, he was talking about making his servants flames of fire. Here we see that the throne is a flaming fire. No wonder his servants should reflect that. And its wheels were all ablaze. Oh man. What? It's mobile. Come on, a mobile throne. Not a mobile phone. Not a mobile phone. You got a mobile phone. I was trying. I was trying. His throne was a flaming fire and his wheels were all ablaze. I don't know that you're envisioning God's throne. When you're envisioning this scene of multiple thrones being set up, and in my mind it is the central, it is the biggest, it is the most obvious one that the Ancient of Days is going to sit upon. And you're looking to see his very, his very countenance, his very fire that is upon him because it's from within him. And his throne has wheels. You got to think about this like a Merkava, like a tank, because this is where our God is coming from. And this is where we're starting because the Ancient of Days has now taken a seat. Man, what kind of ride does that look like? Those are some expensive rims. All right, verse 10. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Tens. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Uh, Daniel's given us a very clear picture as the Lord's revealing it to him, what the throne of God looks like and what he does. And now the council that surrounds him, what they do as well. Both the ancient of days and the court took their seat. And when they took their seat, do you see the last thing that we read? And the books were open. Oh, every time we see this throughout the word, it is the judgment of God being revealed, the testing of men's deeds that now stand before God and have to give an account. See, as the Ancient of Days was seated and those who were in his council took their seat, the full judgment of God was pronounced. Say full judgment. Full judgment. We see this imagery in the throne and this council that surrounds him. And every time that we see the the seating taking place, we know that the judgment of God is at hand. That should create some kind of urgency. If the fire of God in the wheels isn't enough, if the fire of God coming out before him, this Holy Ghost flamethrower in front of his Merkava 
isn't enough. Know that the books will be open and all of the secrets of our life are going to be laid bare before this ancient of days in his council. Come on, this one who has taken his seat upon this throne, this fiery throne, is somebody that we need to worship with all of our heart, with all out abandon. What we were thinking about this afternoon was we were considering, we were meditating, we were praying about the goodness of our God. Anybody just need to be reminded of that today, just how good God is? The fact that everything he does is good. For those who have dedicated their lives, who understand that he is seated on the throne, that he has taken his seat, and you say, Lord, I want to please you. Do you know what he does on your behalf? He does everything that's good for you. If you have a difficult day, you know what he's doing? He's working something into you. He's taking something out of you so that when they are seated and the books are open, that you will not be found wanting. Come on. That the judgment begins with the house of God now. He is good to you, church. Yeah. Can anybody say that God has been good to Amen. you? He is a God who shows no preferences, only a precise will that will uh, um, break open the way. What I love about this church, listen to how good God has been to us already tonight. In case you've missed it. In case you've missed that you've been a part of a church that has the very lampstand of God's presence among us. That you're a part of a church that you can find, that have a, a friend, uh, somebody around you step forward and give you a word at the exact moment that you need it over and over and over and over again. We serve a good, good God. He is one that breaks open the way. So let me, let me encourage you. We're going to turn to Micah chapter 2. But while you're doing that, I want you to catch this church. We had two prophetic words that came forth during worship. The first one had to do with Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The second part of the, the prophecy that came forth was from Micah 2.13. Yeah. These men didn't know that we picked these verses to start with to talk about he who is seated on the throne and the one that's going to break open the way. But apparently God loves you enough that he's going to tell it to you again. He's going to tell it to you before the sermon starts. He's going to tell it to you as the sermon starts. And he's going to keep speaking it to you if you'll allow his goodness to reign in your life. Look at Micah 2.13. Before we read it, I just want to be able to, to glorify God in this manner that with no one's previous knowledge, he is able to speak to the very fiber of the message that he was birthing inside of us. That there's not one little nuance that goes unnoticed in our lives that he is not sustaining. That he's not providing. He's not assuring of us. It gives us the opportunity to lift our heads up and begin to praise the name of our God because he's with us. He's in our midst. He's speaking to us. Man, isn't it good when you have the affirmation that God is actually talking to you? There's no cold shoulder, man. He's making himself revealed and known. Come on, it's, so un, it's such a, an important part for us to understand today. No amount of difficulty that you are facing, yeah. no amount of financial trouble, no amount of uh, circumstances that you're under, no amount of personal internal dialogue that you're having causes God to not be good to you. He is working on your behalf. Yeah. He is working to speak to you in ways that you, don't, you and I don't often catch. We catch 1% of what he's doing, and that 1% that I am aware of is still enough for me to praise him all the days of my life. Amen. 
and never let a discouraging thought enter. Or if it does enter, to not let it stay there, not for one second. Because He is good to us. Amen. He is working something in. The more difficult it is, the more He must be trying to work into us. Look at Micah chapter 2 and verse 13. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Those gates that were opened. Abimbola quoted a scripture about how the doors have been opened. The gates have been opened. Now the heavens are being opened. You have to understand what God is trying to tell you tonight. The one who breaks open the way will go out before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. You have a king that's not leading from some hill far off in the distance. He is going out before you. He is in front of you. He has prepared the way. All we need to do is follow in what he's doing. Their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. See, church, God is always moving forward. That throne that has wheels on it has wheels that go in every direction. So any direction he chooses is always forward. Amen. See, this is what he's doing, and he's always going forward to break open the way for you, for those who are his servants. Amen. It's so that you and I can break through the gates. He is going before us to break open the way so that you can break down the gate. That's what the verse says. They will break down the gate. Amen. They will break through the gate and go out. See, you've got to be able to pass through. Your king that is passing through, that's providing for us the leadership that we need. The direction that we need. He is so trustworthy. Can somebody understand and say amen to that? Amen. Our God is so trustworthy. Everything that he directs us, everything that he's doing is something that we can count on in his leadership. And yet our flesh revolts constantly against it. It does. Is that true? Okay, you got real quiet there for a second. I just want to make sure. We understand that there is nothing but goodness that is coming from him. If, you, if I asked you to say it, you would say, yes, pastor, I believe that he's only going to do something good for me. And then how many of us had worries in our hearts today? How many of us were worried about the circumstances on our job? The worried about the finances that we had? Worried about the decisions that we're making? Worried, 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 fearful, worried, fearful. See, you can't both say that he's going to go before you and break open the way and then be worried about your way being broken open. He is good to us. Our flesh revolts against this fiery, way-opening, breakthrough kind of leadership that God has. And I'm going to give you a quick, small hint here. It's because we're actually full of pride and arrogance. It's true. I'm not full of pride. Well, then you just showed that you are. (laughs) That is the reaction that we have in it. I don't know if I'm full of pride. How can I both be filled with pride and fear? Yeah, we're really good at it. We're afraid something's not going to happen, so we think we have to take control over the one who's orchestrated it all. The one who's going to pass before us and be at the head, be in the lead, be in the front. See, we have a lot of preferences. We have a lot of opinions. Just like Naaman. I was expecting you, Lord, to come out and wave your hand over the spot. At least that's just naming. It's us. I mean, I know the Lord said he was going to provide for me. I know the Lord has called my family to get on the mission field. I know that the Lord has called me here so I can be a pillar in this house. But I'm having difficulty at work. I was hoping he would just kind of wave his hand over my work and it get better. (laughs) 
Why do you think he put you there? I thought he would just wave his hand over my finances and it would get better. Wow. I thought he would just wave his hand over the sickness in my body and it would get better. Yeah, that ain't how this works. No. But we have a God who's good and we're going to learn how to get rid of our pride and arrogance and preference and opinion here tonight. Can somebody say amen? You know what I hear about pride, uh, arrogance, preference, and opinion, and, and taking a seat? There's been a few times that we've been on airlines, and there are certain airlines that don't have assigned seating. It's first come, first serve. So you show up, everybody has their luggage, and I am certain that you are among the very few that have the godly attitude that you're just going to wait for everybody else to go. And then, out of humility, pick the seat that no one else really wanted. I'm, I'm, I am glorifying God by assuming the best in that manner. Amen. But if you're like me, everything inside of you revolts against that idea. And you can't help, in everybody's body language, I just kind of start tensing up and, you know, they, they move an inch closer. You're like, nope, and there... Everyone is gunning to take their seat. But it's out of the motivation of pride. Nope, I'm not going to let you get ahead of me. I already have it planned of where I need to take my seat at. Come on, when we're boarding the will of God, we do the exact same thing. Lord, I have the flight plan that you gave to me. And I have determined... Where I need to be seated. You've shown me your will. So I'm going to exalt myself in front of you. Because I just want to make sure that I do what's pleasing to you. I want to make sure that I rightly handle your will for my life. So I'm going to step right in front of you. I'm going to sit in the pilot seat. That's where I'm going to take my seat. Man, this is a dangerous position to be in. Thank the Lord that we have the ability to identify that with God's word before it goes into full fruition. And we're able to crucify that pride. We're able to put to death that arrogance. And you see how the progression is? It starts at pride. It's arrogance. It is preference and opinion. From a very strong version to a very mild, a very subtle, sly, cunning manner of what pride really is. Or this is just my opinion that I'm never going to let go of unless you absolutely discipline me. I'm just going to hang on to it for a while. God gives us the ability to see this. And when he does reveal to us in all of these areas, we have a responsibility to, to crucify, to put it to death. And we will encourage you guys, these things can die. They don't have to remain. Come on, that's good news. We serve a God who is able to help us put these things to death. And here's why. These very items blind your perspective of his goodness. The very things that we were just talking about. And they keep you in in a point of being dissatisfied. In discontentment. Wanting more. And you're never filled with good enough. And here's the thing. The, The effect and side result is that you easily fall into despair when your expectations are not met. I've already doubled down, tripled down, quadruple crowned. I'm just trying to make it rhyme. 
I've already heavily invested in what my pride, arrogance, preference, and opinion have determined what my life should look like. And it's an expectation unless you meet it, I'm just going to give up all hope for what your salvation has purchased for me. Hey, since we're family here, husbands and wives, I'm talking to you for just a second. Yeah. We have the stubborn and arrogance of pride that goes back and forth. Oh, let's just say it's from a wife towards her husband. Mm-hmm. Fighting, 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 fighting. When you decide that you can't win that point anymore, the flip-flop happens. The flip from being prideful to being full of despair and woe is me. That's right. That takes place all of the time with us here in the room. Some of you men haven't figured this out, and that's when you lose the battle. Some of you women haven't figured this out, and that's where you lose the battle. You lose the battle inside because it's an issue of pride, but you don't think that your despair is related to your pride. Come on. But it is. Totally is. And this is what the Lord is going to help us to overcome tonight. So that you understand you can't keep holding on to your pride and arrogance and then just decide that now it's about despair. Both are forms of manipulation because you forget how good God is to you. That's true. We're going to help you tonight. This is the right word for us tonight. Here's one of the clarifications that can help you identify it. That when you have uh, invested in what pride, arrogance, preference, and opinion uh, are at work in you, you begin to become distorted in your view of God's righteous leadership in your life. And here's how. Your first reaction when challenged is to disqualify. I'm going to disqualify you as my leader and therefore nullify the validity of what you're challenging my pride to be, my arrogance. It's just like the, what, what Pastor Way said earlier. Hey, I, I think you, when you made that statement, that that was filled with a level of arrogance. No, it wasn't. No, not at all. That it's a defensive measure that goes the next step in that statement of, no, I think you're really projecting onto me. I think you're arrogant for bringing it up to me. <laughs> and here's how. Here's four instances last week where I saw arrogance inside of you. So who are you to bring that to me? Or maybe point to something that is completely unrelated. Oh, really? You know, I've seen this in your life, and it shows that you have a, a holiness issue, a faithlessness issue, or whatever it is. But what pride, arrogance, preference, and opinion want to do is defend itself at all costs, even to the expense of disqualifying every means of leadership that God's put around you. Take a look at Numbers chapter 12. Let's all turn to Numbers chapter 12 to see this directly written in the Word. And it's okay that y'all get quiet because we know that you're thinking. Numbers chapter 12. Verse 1. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. For he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord... Yeah, it's, it's pretty push shot. I mean... Yes, we got it. The point is that she was not an Israelite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Are you the only mouthpiece of God? Are you the only one that's anointed and called and can give a six scripture string on pride? I can do that too. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also? 
whoa, now we have some elevation. Has he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. I love that verse. Pinned by the very hand of Moses. <clears throat> or his close disciple after his death. But I, I want to put this in perspective, right? We're all very familiar with these three characters, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Aren't Aaron and Miriam in the inner circle? In the inner circle amongst around 3 million total people in the population of Israel at this time? Aaron was called by God to meet Moses on the backside of the desert to be his mouthpiece for him. But there's a level of arrogance, a level of self-exaltation. Both Miriam and Aaron had pride and preference about who Moses married. I mean, th this is a 450-pound red herring that looks like a Cushite wife. I'm not saying his wife looked like a fish. I'm just saying it's a side issue. That yes. The whole point is that it was, a, it was a, a physical and tangible means of disqualification. How can you be the only one that God uses? Look at the color of shoelaces you're wearing. What? They, they walked in a, a, a place that had a distorted view. In their pride and arrogance, it removed their sight of seeing where they were actually standing. Standing right next to Moses. Well, in seeing this in, in full view, this arrogance, this personal opinion of Miriam and Aaron, it unveiled the real issue wasn't who Moses' wife, uh, uh, wife was, as much as their lack of respect, their lack of recognition, and being reverenced of what God is doing through Moses and the responsibility that he had on his shoulders. I mean, this guy is carrying three million people on his shoulders, leading them out of a nation who at that time is the most powerful nation in all the world. He is delivering them from death and bringing them into life, and they got the nerve to do this to Moses. See, Moses was the author of the Torah. He was carrying that call to bring forth the word of life and that God would use him and it required a level of humility. He just got through spending 40 years in the desert, yeah. becoming humble and getting rid of these things. See, Moses knew how to take his seat. He knew how to take his seat in humility, not in pride, not in arrogance, preference or opinion. He crucified those very things. And after 40 years of shepherding, he is now qualified to lead the entire nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the promises and call of God. Had he yielded to arrogance in any opinion to the one seated on the throne, we wouldn't have the salvation and deliverance of Israel. Numbers 12 is such an, uh, it's one of my favorite passages. In verse 1, you get the proposed problem. It's because you married an African. We don't like the fact that she is an Ethiopian. Mm -hmm. You gave, you have a wife who is an African. We don't like that. That's actually not the issue. The issue is in verse 2. Can't we also hear from the Lord? Yeah. Are you telling me that sometimes our fights aren't about what we think we're fighting about? 
You think, are, are you telling me, pastor, that, that I'm not actually angry at the thing that I'm angry at? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. But if you listen closely enough, you will hear what the real reason is. It's true. Verse one, false reason. Verse two, actual reason. Verse three is the solution to the situation. Moses was the most humble man on the planet. So says Moses. So he's either not the most humble man because he wrote it about himself or you and I don't actually understand humility. Mm. He is pinning this under the inspiration of God himself. So he's either not humble because he's saying it or he is, and this is accurate. And you and I need to catch up with where taking a seat in humility actually looks like. Yeah. Turn to Proverbs eight thirteen to help us to see what this is like. Amen. Thank you, word of God. Thank you, word. Proverbs eight thirteen says this. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Okay? Good start. Everybody with me? We're off to a good start. Yep. Now let's go ahead and define what that evil actually looks like. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Mm. See, I love this, this unparalleled truth in God's word about the fear of the Lord. It's not only the beginning of wisdom. It's not only the key to the treasure. It's not only the beginning of life. Here we're seeing that the fear of the Lord is hating something. Those who fear the Lord will actually... Lack nothing. Where's Stephanie? Stephanie quoted that verse to me yesterday. She encouraged me through Psalm 34 that those who fear the Lord will lack nothing. That, that when, you, when you seek the Lord, you will never, you will lack no good thing in the Lord. Amen. See, but here in this, this verse, we're told to hate pride and arrogance. In others, but first of all, hating it in yourself. Yeah. Oh, I hate that guy. He's so arrogant. I got to tell you that when I was growing up, that my wife's parents did not like me at all. I was 16, 17, 18, because I was an arrogant son of a gun. I was so fearful that everyone else would think that I was stupid, that I had nothing to offer. So when I did something right, I wanted to make sure that all of you people knew that I did it right. I was arrogant. Because I had fear of everything else but wow. the Lord. Wow. See, but what we see here is we're supposed to hate pride and arrogance. We're supposed to yeah. hate it in us. That little... Do you understand that we're not just talking about how you speak, but actually the internal motivation first? Yes. It starts off with, I hate pride and arrogance. Then I hate evil behavior. Then I hate perverse speech. It starts off internally yes. and then goes out to what you are doing and what you're saying. Yes, it's all of the above, but it starts with the internal part. The behavior and the speech that comes along with that prideful and arrogant heart, those evil behaviors. But see, this is us understanding what the fear of the Lord is so we can have a glimpse of what true humility is. True humility begins with us hating pride and arrogance inside of us. Yeah. When you want to stand and have your way, that should be the fear of the Lord and you should, Mike, you want to hate that about yourself. Take yeah. it to the altar. Let God set it on fire that you can be changed from that, that you will not hold on to that. Pride makes you want to hold on to that. A fear of the Lord causes you to want to die to that. Amen? Let's all turn to Psalm 27. 
Psalm 27, verse 11, say, take your seat whenever you're there. Now, the, the thing with pride and arrogance, who is usually the last person to detect it? Yourself, right? Well, when we see it in other people, we hate it. We despise it. In fact, let's read this verse and we're going to learn a little bit about that. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes. For false witnesses. Huh. False witnesses rise up against me. Spouting. Not just uttering, but spouting. A column of volume coming out. Spouting malicious accusations. Don't you hate false witnesses? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know. You know, like at a work situation, when everybody's called on the carpet about something that happened, you know exactly who did it, and they start spouting off malicious accusations, diverting the accountability from themselves and putting it on somebody who doesn't deserve it. That makes you furious, doesn't it? Yes. Injustice begins to boil within you. Yes. Well... What's going on inside of you is how dare you exalt yourself and accuse me of what I am innocent of. What if you're that person that's being blamed at work for that? Man, I mean, your flesh just begins to rise up. Well, let's identify something here. How you handle false witnesses reveals the level of trust that you have in the Lord. Is your pride going to defend you? Is your arrogance going to self-exalt you? Is your preference is going to make a distinction in order to separate yourself and justify? Or just have your opinion so that you are immovable and no one can come against you. But humility, humility says the same thing that the verse 11 does, the way that it starts. Teach me your way. Humility bows down and says, Lord, I don't know how to handle these false witnesses. I don't know how to handle these malicious accusations. I need you to teach me. How do I respond to this? Because I want to defend myself, but I know that I can't. Only you can defend me. See, pride and arrogance, though, it says, I will prove to you my innocence. I'll prove to you that I'm right. You just don't see it yet. I'm going to use enough force to make sure that you understand that. Whenever malicious accusations are hurled, they're aimed at destruction, right? That's the whole point of using the word malicious. It's looking to undercut and bury, just ruin your reputation. You know, these are horrible, wicked, malicious people in your life, right? I mean, just aimed at destroying your reputation, everything that God's worked for in your life. Well, tonight, they're not those people. They are the very thoughts inside your own mind, will, and emotions. These are the thoughts inside of you that accuse your leaders. They accuse those that are pouring into your life day after day. It accuses those that are saving your life time and time again, that have rescued you from the pit of your own despair. They're the accusations and malicious spouting that are hurled at those that are actually leading you into the fruitful life that you now possess, and it can be more. Oh, these thoughts are malicious, all right. But more so towards you. They're looking at burying the godly nature inside of you and putting it to death. When fully exposed, they no longer seek to destroy your leaders, 
But now they seek to destroy your very own worth. It's what Pastor Wade was saying earlier. All these malicious accusations and these false witnesses of rebellion and stubbornness and pride and arrogance inside of you, when they're, the light of God's word is shined upon them, that same malicious spirit in those thoughts begin to undercut the value of who you are to the king. It robs you of the righteous stance that you have before God. And you can't see yourself rightly at all. It has an attitude that says, I might as well just not go on living and just give up on Jesus and everything. When you're coming to that point, it requires the same amount of force to repent because it's still aimed at destroying you and burying what God has been investing inside of you. We want to tell you tonight, church, you're better than this. You are so much better than this. You are more than this. What we're going to do tonight is put these very things to death. Amen. We're going to use God's word to burn within us on that altar, consume them, make them nothing but a pile of ashes so that we can celebrate what God is going to build inside of us. So our goal is that we are crucifying this pride and arrogance, this preference and opinion, so that we can move on and stand as confident men and women before God. Oh, come on. Confidence is what we're after. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 27. It says this, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait Amen. for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. See, you've got to be able to remain confident, but the way to do that is to take your seat in humility, to cause pride and arrogance, to die inside of you, to let it be burned up so that you can see the goodness of the Lord. It's not that he's not being good. It's our lack of being able to see that he's being good to us, whether no matter what the circumstances are. See, you've got to be able to take your seat. You've got to be able to wait for him. By the way, be strong and take heart is... Kazakh and Amats in your lieb. Be strong and courageous inside of your heart. It's the very call that God gave to Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. It's the very call that God gave to Joshua at the beginning of Joshua. Be strong. Be courageous. This is the exact same thing that he's saying. You wait for the Lord. You let him determine your course. And you can be strong and take heart. Because you will be able to achieve what you have. That is called confidence inside of you. When it's more than just your words, it's the internal motivation of your heart. You're saying, Lord, I want to get this right because I love you. Because you're so good to me. This will help with what the Lord was speaking to us on Monday night. You want to be motivated out of love instead of out of something else? Well, you start seeing that the goodness of the Lord is upon you, and that builds your confidence. Church, when pride and arrogance and preference are consumed at the altar, you get to receive a renewed image of God. You You get to let pride be replaced with humility. Arrogance be replaced with trust. You get preference replaced with the precision of the heavens that leads and guides you. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 11 to see how the New Testament engages with this. Matthew 11 and verse 29. Say, take your seat when you get there. It says this. Obviously, the words of Jesus, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. 
and you will find rest for your souls. Very familiar verse. Yeah. Let's pretend like you've not quoted it for the last 10 years of your life. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. We know that the yoke is the way of life. It's, it's the teachings. It's the, you understand the character. You're going to learn from Christ. And he could have said anything that followed after this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am the smartest man who's ever been. Okay, you're right. It's true. I am the son of God. Yes, that's true. awesome. I have more anointing in my pinky than, yes, you're right. <laughs> but what does he say? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I'm gentle. Yeah. What? I'm gentle and humble in heart. Not just humble in my speech. Not just humble in my, my platitudes and my behavior. My demeanor is gentle. He's saying I'm gentle and humble inside. He's the king of the universe and he's taken a seat of humility. He's saying this you should learn from. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Amen. When you're able to walk in humility, you know what happens? You start seeing his goodness everywhere. You start being revived in your soul. You're like, man, today was really rough. But I feel so, I feel so alive. I found yeah. rest. I'm going to yes. sleep well tonight. You know why? Because God gives rest to those that he loves. Amen. I'm not just saying that because I have the gift of falling asleep in 1.2 seconds. Bam. Okay, maybe just a little bit. Doesn't it give rest to your soul to think about this? Yes. Isn't there a shalom that comes upon you when you're thinking about taking this part of his yoke? This part of who he is? Yeah. Being gentle and humble in heart? That everything that you say, that your motivation is driven from humility, from gentleness? Why? Because you're entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. You're not frantic on the inside, worried that you're not going to get what you need, worried Come that on. you're going to get, you're yes. going to lose what you do have, worried that even if you have it now, it won't be there when you really need it. All of those things melt away and you're able to go, Whew. rest. I'm finding rest because I've taken this yoke upon me. See, isn't this amazing? Moses declares that he's the most humble man in the world. Jesus really does the same thing. You need to learn from me. You know why? Because I'm humble. What up? Perhaps we need to understand a different level of humility tonight. Isn't that not humble for him to say it? No, it's perfectly humble because it's yeah. right. And he's actually humble in heart. And he knows that it's for your advantage to know that you should be like him in being humble in heart. Yeah, it is. Come on now. There's a... There's an end goal that Jesus sees in this, though. The end goal includes you finding rest for your souls. It's being able to be a good shepherd, the great shepherd over a sheep. Isn't that what happens whenever you begin to let his way of life rest on your shoulders? You're no longer carrying your load, you're carrying his. And it's that load that includes and requires humility. But there's an end goal that he's also looking forward to in addition to that. You might remember what happens in Matthew chapter 17. When he goes up to Mount Hermon, you have the transfiguration. That that taking a seat in humility would lead to the radiance of God's glory being reflected on his face. 
He knew the glory that that would accomplish, that taking his seat in humility would lead to the glory of God being upon him. That's the same thing that happened to Moses. Moses came down from the mountain. They asked to put a veil, that he would put a veil across his face because it was shaming them and frightening them so much. That spending time with God required humility at first, but it would result in radiance afterwards. Do you remember Stephen when he was being stoned? What does it say that his face looked like? It shone like an angel that walking in humility or taking a seat in humility is going to guarantee that the glory of God will provide everything you need, including resurrection power that shines off of your face. The road to Emmaus, disciples don't even recognize Jesus. He's in a glorified body because he took his seat in humility, even death on a cross. And God exalted him and have the name above every other name. Well, we want to share with you a proper understanding of humility. Before you do that, I just want y'all to understand what a jewel that Pastor Matt just gave you. You want to be radiant? You want to be some type of, of shining star for the Lord? Hmm. Everyone that was like that in the word of God, it was because of their incredible amount of humility. Yeah. See, he can't entrust you with your glory if you're going to take it and use it for yourself. Yeah. Your humility allows himself to entrust, even in your natural demeanor, something that is completely of the heavens. Man, take a look at this slide that we have. Humility. This is from Holman's International or Illustrated Bible Dictionary. The personal quality of being free from arrogance and pride and having an accurate estimate of one's worth. See, it's not one or the other. It's both. The obvious is that we get rid of arrogance. We get rid of pride. Being free and liberated. But there's always then a vacuum there of what do we do instead of arrogance? What do we do in place of pride? And that's where we vacillate from becoming so stubborn and hard-hearted, full of these two things, and going to the opposite end of the spectrum and throwing away all value and worth that the blood of Jesus paid for you in the first place. It's about having an accurate estimate of one's worth. What you begin to do when this is rightly operating within you is that you say, yeah, you know what? I have been operating in arrogance and pride. That is going to be a malicious onslaught that is destroying the work of Christ in me. I'm going to run to the worth that the blood of Jesus gives me. I'm going to run and wash myself in the renewed image of who he has made me and live up to the divine nature that he's put inside of me. I am worth something to the king and it's my responsibility to live up to it. Man, that is good. Let's turn to first Samuel chapter two. Let's see how this continues on in the word to have the right estimate of one's worth. That's actual humility. That allows you to stand in boldness and say, no, 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 no. This is a deep conviction that the Lord has given me. I'm not moving off of it. Well, that's not very humble. Yes, it is. It is humility. It is to say, no, no, no. I know what the Lord has given me and I will not be dissuaded from it. I will not be pulled off of the actual worth and the merit of what God has put within me. I will not lower myself and I will not exalt myself. I will actually take my seat in humility. And first Samuel two teaches us this in verse six. Somebody say, take your seat when you get there. The Lord brings death and he makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. 
The Lord sends poverty and wealth. Because he's good to us. Yeah. He humbles and he exalts. Yeah, he, does. he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Yeah. For the foundations yeah. of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. This is Hannah praying to the Lord, yeah. having divine revelation about our Messiah and our King. And she's saying the Lord does these things. The Lord is good to us. He is working something into us no matter the situation. He humbles, but He also exalts. He will lift you up. He lifts the poor up. Yeah. Isn't this exactly what Matthew 5 is saying in the Sermon on the Mount? Yeah. Those, the, the poor in spirit, what theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what the kingdom is made of. His people who will be poor in spirit and humble themselves. That you can take your seat in humility. Let me just read this to you while you stay there in Samuel. Ephesians 2 says this. It's the exact same concept. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. It should be familiar to you. One of our 12 gates. In order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, of His goodness expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Man, it is good for us to be considered and to be considering the idea that we are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. But do you understand why He does that now? So that He can show the incomparable riches of His grace in the coming ages to the, to the archon that are there, that all the, the sons of God are able to see this because this is what He's doing expressed. Somebody say expressed. Expressed. Expressed in His kindness to mm. us in Christ Jesus. The expression of his entire plan in seating you in the heavenly realm, the expression of it is his kindness. Yeah. It's his goodness to us. And this is what we're talking about as we're learning to take our seat in humility. When you understand that he's the one that lifts up and puts down, that he is the one who can lift the poor from their state. He is the one who will seat you with princes. He is the one who will seat you in the heavenly realms. That allows you to take your seat in humility with an absolute assurity and confidence because you're seeing the goodness of the Lord right here with yeah. your own eyes in the land of the living. Do you hear what the Lord's illuminating for us? He's bringing to light what we have to fight for. You know, pride is strong. It's deeply rooted. Arrogance. It's highly exalted. Preferences. Undetectable. Opinions. Negligible on the radar. What it is our responsibility to do is to hunt these things down and destroy them. I mean, like going through your house with a lampstand, searching every corner, every fiber of your home, looking for any leaven that is this pride, this arrogance, Lord, this preference, and this opinion. Because the throne of honor is what we are to inherit. The ability to be seated with princes is what's at stake. Every time these things rise up in you, let this verse come to mind in 1 Samuel 2. Let this verse come to mind in Ephesians and say, it's not worth it to give in to you. You can't give me the same thing that humility can give me. You give me the grave, but God gives me the throne to sit with him on it. Romans 8, 12, let me read this to you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation 
but it is not to the flesh, but it feels like it, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Say, will die. Will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the pride, put to death the arrogance, the preference and opinion, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Say, will live. Will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves. So that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. Sonship. This is a closeness to the father. A rightful inheritance of what the father has and that is rightfully yours. And by him, by that spirit within us, we have the opportunity to cry, Abba, Father. When pride rises up, you're going to cry, Abba, Father. When arrogance rises up and you see it and you hate it, you don't want it to be in you. You don't know what to do. You lift up your head and you say, Abba, Father, spirit of adoption, come alive inside of me and put this to death. When preferences and opinions are undetectable, but you just know something's wrong, you don't know what it is. Get before God and say, Abba, Father, bring in your brothers, bring in the family of God and say, I can't tell what this is. Can you help me? Father of God, speak through them to help liberate me from this. We are led because we are sons. We are confident and clear with his direction because all competing preferences have now been removed at this point. And this results in loving leadership. I mean, taking your seat in the rightful place of relating rightly to leadership. That's dualistic. It means loving the leadership that you are following. Loving the leadership that God has put in your life, looking to it for God to provide for you through it. But it's also loving the, those that you lead. See, this is both ways. That God has given every person in this room the ability and the responsibility to lead something. And when you are walking rightly with God as a son, crying out, Abba, Father, operating by that spirit, you love all facets of leadership. Oh, sometimes, and for many years, I was a really good follower. But I hated leading. Because it magnified every insecurity, every deficiency, that I wanted to maintain my integrity of being a great follower. And the minute I'd begin to lead, it would show just how much I tanked at it. Whatever. I wanted to stick with what was only comfortable that could bring me glory through my own strength. I resisted stepping into the realms that revealed my pride, my inner arrogance. Even though I wasn't a very, uh, uh, well, this well-spoken was one. I didn't use many words to describe what was going on inside of me. I wasn't one that went around with a trumpet and blew my own horn, but I would remain silent in order to conceal what my pride and arrogance had magnified. And I had to put it to death. When we look at this, and we begin to put these things to death inside of us, we have the ability to fulfill verse 16. It says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
You know, the spirit inside of you then has the opportunity to stand up and begin to herald to the heavens and everybody around you. This one belongs to the father. This one is anointed. This one is my choice. He's not exalting himself. I'm exalting him. There's a confidence whenever the father begins to lift you up. You didn't do it in your own strength. He did it. He gets the glory. You can then stand and go, if you're doing this, then I'm trusting it. I'm having an accurate estimate of my worth. Somebody say, Pastor, you're preaching. See that spirit that's testifying. Let's see how the word agrees with this. In Isaiah 57, 15, let me just read it to you. It's going to be on the screen for time's sake. For this is what the high and exalted one says. He lives forever, whose name is holy. His name is holy. I live in a high and a holy place, but also... I live with the one who is contrite. I live with the one who is lowly in spirit to revive. Somebody say revive. Revive. Revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive. Somebody say revive. Revive. The heart of the contrite. Do you hear what God is doing? Do you understand that when you take your seat in humility, he is able to then come along and give you his word that revives you, that revives the spirit of the lowly. When you're trying to get away from being lowly, you don't also have his spirit or his word there to revive you to bring you back to life yeah i need his resurrection power every day amen we've read it a couple of times first corinthians 15 talks in verse 30 i die every day brothers i mean this this is this is the life of the believer where we have to understand that the high and lofty one the one who lives in a high and holy place whose name is holy also lives with you when you are contrite so that he can revive you. He can bring you back to life. The kingdom of heaven is given to these kind of people. The kingdom of heaven is at your hand when you are able to do that. Church, God is going to revive something in us tonight. That idea that every day you can have a revival, that every day he can revive you as you just take yourself and take your seat in a place of humility. Mm. You allow his revival to come and permeate your life every day. Come on now. That's a special thing in the, in the house of God. Isn't it exciting when you begin to have a revival? I mean, that's exactly what the word means. You're coming back to life again. Remember we mentioned earlier about that confidence of hearing God's voice. I can really hear from God. My, my ears aren't broken anymore. The receptors are on. And you come to life knowing that God is still speaking to you. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 6. Knowing precisely what the Lord is saying to us and what he's saying to you. That through humility we gain revival. But that also looks like healing. Hosea 6.1 Come, let us return to the Lord. Let us repent unto Him. Yes, He has torn us to pieces. Man, the Father disciplines the sons that He loves. Yeah, He does. But there's an end goal in what, why He tore you to pieces. But He will heal us. Come on now. Say heal. Heal. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. That's the guarantee and the certainty. After two days, he will revive us. Come on now. Bring a revival within us. 
On the third day, he will restore us, bring back everything that was stripped away and even add to it more. That we may live or take our seat in his presence. This is the goal that God has aimed after. He's looking for our repentance. He's looking for us to see the discipline that he's given us because he wants to heal us. He wants to bind us. He wants to revive us and restore us so we can take our seat right next to him and be with him. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. See, when we look at what God is doing to get us to return and going through that process of being torn, you know what he's tearing out? He's tearing out our pride. You've been there when God is disciplined. You're probably there right now. That God is crushing your arrogance. He's dismantling all your preferences. And every choice I make, it just doesn't seem to be blessed. Amen. He's tearing it out. Every opinion is wrong. Amen. He's showing me how to get revived. How to get my heart and my soul and my spirit healed. He longs to take us to the place where we can be seated next to him. And have that closeness and proximity. Do you hear how good God is to us? Do you hear what pastor's saying and how it should shift our hearts immediately? (laughs) We want these things torn out of us. We don't want to stay in pride. That won't allow you in his presence. The reason that these things are there. Put verse 2 back up, Megan. Hosea 6-2. Right at the end. Look at that last phrase. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. Man, you could preach your whole life on that. But look at the last phrase, that we may live in his presence. That is the end result. Consider Revelation 22. You don't need to turn there. Where you're getting the, the angel showing the river of the water of life that's coming from the throne. In Daniel, we see a river of fire. In Revelation, we're seeing just a river that's there. And the tree of life, it's on both sides of the river. has the river running right through the very middle of the tree of life that produces 12 different kinds of fruit, 12 different that each month it's producing something. And what does it say in the final phrase of verse 2 of Revelation 22? The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Church, there's no way that we could have orchestrated our worship time to also include prayer for physical healing and about nations that need to be reached from this house. Yeah. Do you see the reason that we have to tear these things out? The reason that God is making his employ to us tonight is so that we can remove these things, take our seat on a throne of humility and actually advance his kingdom. That you can advance it here in this church. Pastor, I'm I'm uncertain where I'm going to go. I know where you are now. And I'm praying that God give us hearts for the nation. Amen. That some of you need to understand and you need to get a heart to be a pillar here in this house so that we're constantly launching people. Others of you, it's not even going to be you. It's going to be your children that are going to go to the nations. And we need to start praying about that because that's what the leaves of the tree of life are for is for the healing of the nations. And what do you think we're here for? That God's spirit might move in us. Let's look at let's all turn to Revelation chapter three together. Say, take your seat whenever you're there. To the one who is victorious. 
I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. To take your seat on with him on his throne. Just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. There's a promise. There's a promise to us tonight. That when these items of pride and arrogance, and preference and opinion are put to death. God's end goal is that you are victorious and it shows up by obtaining your rights to sit next to him on his throne. That throne is the very embodiment of all of the power of the kingdom of God. What kind of confidence would you have if right now you're seated right next to Jesus on that throne with him? All the power of the kingdom of God is at your disposal. Because you're completely unified with him and face to face with the living God. Standing as a son because you're seated in humility with him. When we're victorious in crucifying these things, we're taking our seat with him in his humility. It is what qualifies us and gives us the right to sit with him. To take our seat on the throne. Now is the time to ask for help. See, we've gone after all of the realities of what this looks like in the word and in our own hearts. It's time to ask for help. Lord, I keep fighting with this same prideful issue. I keep wrestling with this same arrogance. I don't know how to fully put it to death. My preferences are constantly catching my, me by surprise. And my opinions are too numerous to count. I don't know how to get rid of them. We're going to ask the Lord for help. So stand to your feet. This is how you ask for help, church. You ask for help by asking, Lord, who do I need to repent to? What do I need to repent of? How do I carry this out? It's not just an emotion or thought only. What do you want me to do to put this thing to death? Pull Matthew eleven twenty nine back up again. Take my yoke. What we're going to do is open up this altar. And now is that time to find the ability to be free of all of these items of pride and arrogance, preference and opinion and saying, Lord, I want your yoke. I want to take my seat with you. Help me join you in being gentle. Help me join you in your humility. I want to die with you so I can be seated right next to you. As we begin to pray, make your way down so we can find ourselves seated with him on the throne. Mighty God, we thank you for giving us your yoke. Lord, for making us able to approach you and put to death these things. We ask you for help, Lord God. Help us identify it. Help us crucify it. Help us become just like you, mighty King. We cry, Abba, Father, right now. Come, Lord. Come, Lord, with your resurrection power. Heal us and revive us.